the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is a producer, Sam Maupin engineer this afternoon, and we are grateful to have you with us. We're going to be talking later this hour with Giancarlo Canaparo. He's a legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on the administration's list of religious vaccine objectors. They're putting together first in D.C., and many speculating this could be a, a test for expanding this list. For what purpose, we don't know, uh, across the country. We'll also hear from Donald Critchlow, author of Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny, coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also, a reminder, Mission Connection is coming up next weekend, Friday and Saturday, the 21st and 22nd, at Village Christian Church. You can find out more at Mission Connection, and that's spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. Well, any U.S. senator who doesn't support partisan Democrat voting bills is a segregationist, George Wallace, a racist, Bull Connor, or a Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, according to President Joe Biden in his speech yesterday. Now, interestingly enough, I imagine that lots of his listeners at the college he was speaking, the university, don't know who these individuals were. It's uh, quite an historic look back. This was a rather divisive speech in Atlanta, Georgia, yesterday. Well, the president went to Atlanta, the cradle of the civil rights movement, as he called it, to discuss democracy's future following the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a group of Trump supporters. That's why we're here today, the president said, to stand against the forces in America that value power over principle, forces that attempted a coup, a coup against legally expressed will of the American people by sowing doubt and venting uh, charges of fraud and seeking to steal the 2020 election from the people. They want chaos to reign. We want the people to rule. The president urged uh, Senate Democrats to scrap the filibuster to pass two bills that will set federal election rules that are weaker than some states allow. Now, interestingly, this is a reversal of his position on that very subject when the Republicans ruled and reigned some years back when he was uh, in the U.S. Senate. Well, the next few days when these bills come to a vote will mark a turning point in this nation's history, the president said. We will choose. The issue is um, what we choose, democracy or Uh, over autocracy, light over shadows, justice over injustice. I know where I stand. I will not yield. I will not flinch. I will defend the right to vote our democracy against all enemies, foreign and, yes, domestic. And the question is, again, quoting the president, where will the institution of the United States Senate stand? Every senator, Democrat, Republican and independent will have to declare where they stand, not just for the moment, but for the ages. Elevating this uh, debate, or rather, dramatically will you stand against voter suppression yes or no that's the question they'll answer will you stand against election subversion yes or no will you stand for democracy yes or no and there's one thing every senator every american should remember history has never been kind to those who sided with voter suppression over voters rights and will be even less kind to those who sided with election subversion again this is a rather 
divisive and um, dramatic speech by the president. He went on to say, so I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? And consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be uh, the side of uh, Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Well, this is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. Well, establishing his civil rights credentials, the president said, seems like yesterday, the first time I got arrested. Now, this is another of those instances in which the president made a statement that there's absolutely no uh, no evidence to support that he was ever arrested during the civil rights period. And it's another prevarication that... He repeats, but um, has been debunked. Then, invoking the struggles of civil rights icons, the president said, their struggles here, they're the ones that opened my eyes as a high school student in the late late 50s and early 60s. They got me more engaged in the work of my life. And what uh, we're talking about today is rooted in the very idea of America. He's at a traditionally a black college and a predominantly African-American audience. Uh, surprisingly, um, they haven't embraced the speech nor the president on this particular issue as he had hoped. Well, he argued um, that refusal to weaken voter ID laws, failure to ban ballot harvesting and refusal to allow same day voter registration are examples of voter suppression. Now, that's news to many. He wants to restore pre-clearance provisions that allow the Justice Department to decide if a state can change its voting rules. And otherwise, in other words, federalizing the election system. Well, the president, a longtime supporter of the Senate filibuster, has recently decided it should be scrapped to allow passage of his voting rights agenda. He and other Democrats are making hyperbolic arguments about the end of democracy and election subversion and racism to generate support for uh, squelching the Senate minority. Whether or not that's successful will depend largely on a couple of the more moderate Democrats who have thus far been holdouts on the question of whether or not the filibuster should be allowed to stand. And it's not just uh, cinema and mansion. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell today, the Senate minority leader from Kentucky, fired back at the president after the latter's flawed election overhaul speech in Georgia on Tuesday with a GOP leader saying that the speech undermines democracy. He torched the president from the Senate floor on Wednesday, tearing into um, him over his widely panned speech, calling it a deliberatively divisive and uh, one that was designed to pull our country further apart. The top Senate Republican said uh, Biden called millions of Americans his domestic enemies in the speech and shouted that if you disagree with him, you're George Wallace. George Wallace, McConnell continued, if you don't pass the laws he wants, you're Bull Connor. If you oppose giving Democrats un uh, trammeled one-party control of the country, well, you're Jefferson Davis. Well, McConnell also slammed the president for invoking the Civil War to demonize Americans who disagree with him and pointed out that the president compared a bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. How profoundly, profoundly unpresidential, McConnell said. And we've had a lot of profoundly unpresidential speech of late. And I'm not just talking about this current administration. I think back to the eloquence of previous uh, presidents, not all, but many, uh, and what we have had of, of late certainly pales by comparison. But McConnell went on to say, look, I've known, liked and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. A president shouting that 52 senators and millions of Americans are racist unless he gets whatever he wants is proving exactly why the framers built the Senate to check his power. 
McConnell went on to say. Republican leaders um, also called Biden's speech a rant that was incoherent, incorrect and beneath his office and said the president's speech on Tuesday was the perfect case study as to how Senator Biden was right about the filibuster and President Biden is wrong now. Uh, The speech hasn't um, uh, hasn't been just knocked by Republicans. I didn't put that quite right. But progressives have also gone after the president for his speech. MSNBC commentator Al Sharpton uh, also blasted the president's speech, calling it a uh, you're going to hell speech rather than one that would get voter support. A liberal activist, in addition to his weekend hosting duties on MSNBC, was on hand for Biden's Atlanta address, where the president framed the debate over Democratic election overhauls as in stark terms uh, that will frame what happens in the next few days with the uh, uh, Schumer saying that he wants a vote by the 17th. We'll see what actually happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Giancarlo Canaparo about um, uh, the administration's list of religious vaccine objectors that's being put together in one small area with the expectation it will be expanded. More on that later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later, we'll talk with Giancarlo Canaparo about a, a, a list of religious vaccine objectors, objectors that are being put together. More on that uh, later in the next segment. Well, the uh, Paul Fauci feud continues. A Senator Rand Paul slammed Dr. Fauci as a political animal after a fiery Senate hearing. Well, the U.S. Senator sparred once again with the doctor in a Senate hearing on Tuesday with the lawmaker pressing the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases on reports he sought to quash fringe epidemiologist coronavirus mitigation strategies. Well, the Kentucky Republican also asked Fauci to address accusations that he is at least um, tangentially culpable in the creation of viruses through gain of function research. Well, following the hearing, Paul told Fox News the story. There's evidence on a probability of 90 to 10 that the COVID-19 virus came from a Wuhan, China laboratory and was engineered via gain of function research, despite Fauci's denial. Well, Fauci funded the lab, Paul told the host, Martha McCallum. He tried to obscure the idea that he was giving money to the lab. And then he steadfastly for two years said it wasn't gain of function, that they weren't taking viruses that don't exist in nature, creating them and creating viruses that are so dangerous that they could actually wipe out a a portion of humanity. Later, the senator claimed that Fauci and his former boss, um, ex-NIH chief Francis Collins, orchestrating a takedown of three prominent epidemiologists regarding their coronavirus mitigation theories. They orchestrated a takedown campaign in the lay media, not in scientific journals on the merits, but in the lay media, Paul said. And so he didn't want to answer my question. So he accuses me of fomenting violence. But it's a misdirection because he doesn't want to accept that. Basically, he's become a political animal and that everything he does every day is to further his political agenda, not the science. Well, the good doctor would, of course, disagree with that assessment. Well, the top doc lets the professional mask slip in a heated hot mic explosion after a clash with another GOP representative, calling him a moron. Representative Comer and Jordan expose new Fauci emails they say point to a COVID-19 lab leak cover-up. A Washington Post columnist reports that it's time to make life a living, well, you know where, for the unvaccinated. 
and Omicron testing, the question being asked, are throat swabs better at detecting the COVID-19 variant than rapid tests? There's a growing debate on whether people testing for Omicron should swab their throats. But some scientists say a throat swab may be more effective at detecting Omicron. Uh, Some are calling on the FDA and test manufacturers to better study throat swabs, saying that the reliance on nasal swabs may be one reason why rapid tests seem to be less sensitive in detecting Omicron than previous variants. Well, Ted Cruz slammed the podium over a reporter's mask question, saying just once I'd like you to ask Biden and Saki about the same thing. Well, the U.S. senator from Texas slammed his fists on the podium in frustration on Tuesday as he attacked what he demanded or rather deemed media hypocrisy regarding elected officials wearing masks, face masks or not. During a news conference speaking out against Democrats trying to eliminate the filibuster, a reporter questioned Cruz about him and his fellow Republicans not wearing masks. Cruz quickly shot down the question. Just once, I'd like to see a reporter say to Joe Biden when he stands at the podium using more uh, colorful language in the White House without a mask. Mr. President, why aren't you wearing a mask? Cruz said angrily. Just once, I'd like to see you say to Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, when she stands at the podium with no mask. Ms. Psaki, why don't you have a mask? The questions are only directed at one side, Cruz alleged, and I got to say to, that the American people see the hypocrisy. Well, twice, Cruz thumped his hand on the podium for effect. Prior to this answer, Cruz also called out the wild hypocrisy on the part of the president and his administration regarding COVID, uh, regarding COVID-19 policies. Well, Ray Epps, the whole truth about January 6th, arguably begins and ends with Ray Epps. And if the FBI and the broader uh, Department of Justice are interested in sharing this truth with the American people, uh, they aren't, but let's pretend that they are. They must start by answering these two questions. Who is Ray Epps? I want to know. What was his role in the events of January 6th? Well, the increasingly likely answer, based upon deeply incriminating video evidence and upon the mysterious disappearance of Mr. Epps from the FBI's most wanted poster and upon the FBI's utter unwillingness to answer the questions about Epps from Republican senators during yesterday's hearing, is that Ray Epps was an agent provocateur planted by the FBI to incite lawless behavior by American citizens. This is the well-founded rumor now widely circulating, and the FBI already tarnished reputation is being further damaged by it. Well, the FBI doesn't, FBI rather, doesn't want you to know about Ray Epps, we're being told. Neither does Joe Biden, nor Nancy Pelosi, nor any other members of the truth-averse J6 committee, also known as the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. In truth, the Select Committee is conducting a selective investigation. This isn't the first time um, Ray Epps has been mentioned. Uh, back in October, and nothing since then uh, has worked to remove the uh, the question as the washington examiner reported with speculation swirling republicans have been clamoring for more clarity on epps but justice department and fbi officials have repeatedly declined to provide answers about the provocateur as well as any fbi informants or agents who may have been embedded within the pro-trump crowd of as people stormed the capitol and disrupted the certification of the now president joe biden's win in the 2020 election the january 6th committee made the first move tuesday saying house investigators interviewed epps but failed to offer any insights into whether he was under oath when he denied being an FBI informant. Well, Pelosi's committee, perhaps thinking it had no other choice, has chosen to um, stake out a rather 
uh, a difficult series of claims about Epps. According to its statement, the select committee is aware of unsupported claims that Ray Epps was an FBI informant based on the fact that he was on the FBI wanted list and then was removed from that list without being charged. The select committee has interviewed Mr. Epps. Mr. Epps informed us that he was not employed by working with or acting at the direction of any law enforcement agency on January 5th or 6th or at any other time and that he has never been an informant for the FBI or any other law enforcement agency. So why wasn't he charged? That's the question that has raised the controversy charged for incitement. We need to go into the Capitol, Epps said. Hundreds of other J6 participants have been charged and held for far less serious offenses than what Epps is clearly and unequivocally seen doing on the video. Well, yesterday's Senate hearing, the domestic terrorism threat one year after January 6th was gratifying in that Republican senators, one after the other, exposed the Justice Department and its utter lack of forthcomingness. Uh, Ted Cruz grilled the Assistant Attorney General for National Security. Asking the question uh, whether or not Mr. Epps um, or the FBI had anyone infiltrating the group. They refused to answer rather than simply say no. Well, perhaps the most telling moment of the hearing yesterday was when Cruz asked uh, on January 6th, Mr. Epps is seen whispering to a person. And five seconds later, that person is seen forcibly tearing down the barricades. Sir, similar to the other answers, I cannot answer that, uh, the FBI spokesman said. And again, the question remains. In other developments, the cruise industry is trying to stay afloat during the Omicron surge. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky doubled down on a flawed mask study at a recent Senate hearing. A Canadian province announced a plan to impose fines on the unvaccinated. And the House Sergeant-at-Arms says the capital will remain closed to visitors, saying, I'm afraid of COVID. The Spanish prime minister is urging European leaders to treat COVID-19 as an endemic illness and to track it like the flu. Police and law enforcement line of uh, duty deaths in 2021 jumped 55 percent from the year before. President Biden slammed Jefferson Davis despite his past vote to restore the Confederate leader's U.S. citizenship. Florida abortion legislation would ban the procedure after 15 weeks. And Senator Ted Cruz slammed the arrogance of the FBI to stonewall his questions. North Korea claimed success after a second hypersonic missile test this week. China COVID-19 lockdowns hit factories and ports in the latest knock on the supply chains. And the federal, uh, the Fed's Powell will raise interest rates faster if needed to stem prices. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is considering banning stock trades in Congress if Republicans win the majority. An angry President Biden spewed anti-GOP rhetoric in the controversial Georgia speech. It was filled with uh, gaffes and the speech was um, uh, also a uh, very uh, provocative. And as a um, as oil prices rise, President Biden cut off drilling plans in Alaska. The administration delivered another hit to domestic oil and gas production amid soaring energy prices by reversing the Trump era move to open up millions of acres to drilling in Alaska, drawing rebukes Tuesday from outraged Republicans. Imagine that outraged uh, members of Congress. Mitch McConnell is threatening a Senate nightmare if Democrats nuke the filibuster. The senator said, do my colleagues understand how many times per day the Senate needs and gets unanimous consent for basic housekeeping? Do they understand how many things could require roll call votes? How often the minority could demand lengthy debate? A look at the 32 Democrats who fought against ending the filibuster and now want to end it because they're in power. That's the nature, sadly, of politics. Nearly 100 murder suspects 
have been given home confinement in Chicago as the soft on crime policies there extend to murder. Well, coming up, we are going to talk with Giancarlo, uh, Giancarlo Canaparo. He is a legal fellow and the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about this um, this new list of religious vaccine objectors. Why create a list? What's its purpose? And will it be expanded? We'll talk with him about that coming up in our next segment. Also, we'll hear from Donald Critchlow in the second hour. Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this came to my attention earlier today, and I wanted to see if we could figure it out. There's a tiny administrative agency in the District of Columbia, and they announced a new policy on Tuesday that will likely serve as a model for a whole of government push to assemble lists of Americans who object on religious grounds to a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, we're starting to suspect that the president is... um, well, not keeping his promise to have the most transparent administration in history. And here to talk with us about that possibility is Giancarlo Canaparo, who is a legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on this uh, administration list of religious vaccine objectors. First of all, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, this is such an odd and sort of obscure story. Uh, this administrative agency in the District of Columbia announced this new policy. It's the Pretrial Services Agency for the District of Columbia. Nobody's ever heard of it. Tell us a little bit of the story behind this story. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's sort of entirely random. Every morning I, I uh, read the Federal Register, which is where uh, the executive branch agencies that make up the administrative state publish what they're doing. And I found a little note from this obscure agency that said, we are assembling a database where anyone who works for us, if you file a religious exemption accommodation request from the COVID-19 vaccine, we're going to gather your personal religious information, your name, and a whole bunch of other information, and we're going to just compile it and hold on to it. And there's no explanation of why or what they're going to do with it. Now, when I first saw that, I found that one little tiny agency uh, was doing it. Uh, but since then, I've started digging, and all that, and we have now dozens of agencies in the United States government just within the last month uh, who have started to do similar things. Although it looks like uh, this little agency is collecting more data uh, than others, personal religious information. Or the other agencies are just a little bit better at hiding in legalese what they're really doing. But it looks like uh, many agencies in the government, and this is an ongoing thing, are going to be collecting uh, this information about people who uh, have religious objections to the vaccine, and nobody knows what they're going to be doing with it. Now, what the government has to do, if you make a request, Mm -hmm. Uh, for a religious accommodation. They have to uh, grant that, provided you have a sincerely held religious belief. Uh, But once they've done that, they don't need that information anymore. They don't need to keep it. They don't need to store it in some database. They don't need your name. Uh, They just need to have it to make that determination. But now we've got the government keeping and storing all of this information about its employees' religious views uh, for reasons that the government hasn't explained. 
Well, interestingly enough, the organization that you first noticed, and now there are apparently others, the Pretrial Services Agency for the District of Columbia, um, is an agency with a majority black staff who are both more religious and less vaccinated than other groups. Um, does this comport with his um, racial equality or equity uh, perspective and, and plans? Did you see that throughout some of the other agencies that are also part of this collection of, of data? Yeah, it, what, it's really weird. You hit on this point, which is, you know, the Biden administration will talk about uh, anti-racism and, and the need to be uh, to, for racial equity. Uh, but when it comes to anything COVID-19, that goal goes out the door. So vaccination mandates. We know, for instance, in Washington, D.C., where I am, uh, African-Americans are vaccinated uh, at lower rates. They're also more religious uh, than the average white American. Uh, so they have more vaccine, more religious accommodation requests. Under Biden's equity theory, that means that his vaccination mandate and this data collection is racist because it targets or has a disparate impact uh, on African-Americans. But uh, when it comes to COVID-19 and lockdown policies, uh, that racial equity stuff goes out the window. Now, in a, a, a column that you wrote, you suggest that this may, in fact, be a stealth test of a policy that the president intends to roll out across uh, the whole government. It's sort of a cynical view, but one that seems to, seems to be supported uh, or at least is legitimate to ask in this situation. Your thoughts on why this would be um, called for and how this information might be used? Uh, you know, why it's called for, I, I, I'm at a loss. Uh, look, they need, they, they need to gather that data when you make a religious request. Uh, they do not need to store that data. And at the time that I wrote that, I speculated that it was a whole of government push. We actually know that it is a whole of government so the push. The speculation is several agencies. <laughs> yep, several agencies have done it, and more are continuing to do it. Um, look, the Biden administration may come back and say, "Oh, this is just typical government paperwork," uh, but this sort of database could be used to get to sort of chronicle who in the government uh, is religious, who in the government has views that the administration doesn't like. Um, uh, and it smacks of religious discrimination on a wide scale. You make the point that had the administration uh, announced this through, for example, the Department of Labor, uh, that they intended to adopt this policy, it would be big news. The Federal Register, where announcements like these are made, um, would be flooded with comments that the department uh, would have to address this would delay the rollout of the policy and so on that wasn't done this rather obscure uh, agency and others the lesser known uh, there's not really much buzz around this um, your thought and also new announcements provide um, or require uh, public comment your thoughts on where this is likely to head as it is apparently expanding into other agencies and how it might be abused yeah, it looks like this is expanding to other agencies. Like, like you said, he started with uh, some that are lesser known and, and, less, and have a lower staff uh, numbers, which means that, that there's fewer people who are likely to object. Uh, but, but he could quite easily, you know, assemble this across the entire government. That's three million Americans who work for the government. Uh, a, a good percentage of those are, are probably going to have religious exemptions. Uh, and then he's got a database. 
where he can find who in the government has problematic religious views. Uh, and, you know, whether they use it or not for anything, uh, there's no business. The government has no business uh, keeping lists of which of its employees are religious. Now, is this an exception or are there other examples in which uh, the administration is um, dem- demonstrably faith hostile? Uh, you mentioned the Equity, uh, the Equality Act, uh, in which um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act would essentially be gutted. Are there other examples that would um, merit the skepticism about this new uh, disclosure that you've written about? Yeah, we've seen this administration has been very hostile uh, to uh, Americans with religious beliefs, uh, whether it's uh, COVID testing um, or any of its many other policies uh, that demonstrated hostility to um, uh, Americans with religious beliefs. So, for instance, the the Department of Defense uh, refused to grant religious exemptions to uh, members of the military. Uh, who wanted an exemption for the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, it does, it had, the military does give them, uh, uh, that is, religious exemptions to other vaccines. It has in the past. Uh, but when COVID came around, Biden said nobody gets an exemption. Uh, you had the same thing with uh, Biden tried to pass uh, the, the Equality Act, which would have made uh, all, all the wish list of the LGBTQ movement uh, so that would have mean, mean things like um, sex discrimination includes uh, gender identity or uh, sexual orientation. So uh, a religious school, for instance, a Christian school, uh, couldn't refuse to hire, uh, say, a transgender teacher. Um, and then you've got things like the Mexico City policy um, that uh, Biden rescinded, which prevented uh, foreign uh, prevented American money from funding abortions overseas. Biden says, nope, aid is going to go to uh, uh, encourage and support abortions overseas. I mean, it's one thing after another, um, this administration. And, and, and then, of course, there's its litigation at the Supreme Court where it is constantly on the side of those who are trying to trample uh, the, the free exercise rights of Americans uh, who just have views that this administration thinks are unacceptable. So what should we look for and what, how should we respond to this disclosure and the widening net of agencies that are apparently beginning to collect this information? Well, first of all, we need to keep an eye on it and see what they do with it. Second, uh, if you work for an, a government agency and uh, you filed a religious exemption request uh, and uh, the government asks you to start providing and storing all of this information, uh, reach out to, to me, to the Heritage Foundation, uh, tell us what's going on, because uh, we still don't have a clear picture, uh, but we really need to get a grasp on what the government is doing with this information. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow as more information is made available. Giancarlo, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Giancarlo Canaparo is a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a judicial nominee that uh, has been brought forward has apparently had his driver's license suspended three times and 
This uh, would-be U.S. Circuit Court judge is under scrutiny. BLM supporters are insisting Whole Foods let employees wear political face masks, and they've taken their uh, case to the National Labor Relations Board. Ontario may ask hospitals to rehire fired unvaccinated staff as the shortages take their logically disastrous course. A new poll shows Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is up big in the potential Senate run against the Democrat incumbent. The popular Larry Hogan is yet to say he's running for the Senate. Hugh Hewitt points out that Maryland would be a uh, uh, Governor Larry Hogan would be a terrific senator. Of course, he has to run. A Berkeley school district plans to force all students to wear N95 masks all day, according to one unconfirmed as of last night report. The CDC director doesn't recommend these masks. Meanwhile, Carol Markowitz uh, moved her family out of the COVID insanity in New York and now lives in the freedom of Florida, she says. A study out of uh, England finds the use of masks in schools inconclusive. COVID cases are up in all 50 states. The lockdown states are seeing very large increases. Well, 2021 was the biggest inflation year in four decades. The price of goods rose 7% in December, capping off a year that saw the highest uh, spike in inflation in four decades. On average, prices at the gas pump were 49.6% higher than last year, and the cost of food is up 6.3%. Also, anyone shopping for a used vehicle has faced a sobering inflation reality. This prices have jumped 37.3%. As... um, Seema Shah, chief strategist at Principal Global Investors, observed inflation at 7% is no joke. It's the highest annual CPI number since 1982 and driven not by energy prices, but by just about everything else. More troubling is that the current malaise doesn't look to be ameliorated anytime soon. Consider the logic. High gas prices, so drill less. Well, that appears to be the twisted logic behind a decision to ban oil and natural gas drilling in 11 million acre Alaska, even as Americans have seen their energy costs jump 57 percent over the last year. The decision reverses a Trump era expansion of the country's strategic oil reserve. Of course, the administration excuse for such an economically damaging decision is to protect threatened and endangered species. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy says that's a dubious rationale. This is another sign of the federal government turning its back on Alaska and hampering domestic energy production, he argued. The U.S. Department of Interior is putting the nation in a situation where we have to rely on foreign oil at a time for growing prices and a concern for American consumers. The administration is creating a vaccine enemies list and a small and obscure federal agency, as we discussed a moment ago, We're going to continue to follow that story. The most transparent administration in history is opting for the opaque when it comes to pushing an objectionable new policy. Was Dr. Fauci caught in, well, another lie? Project Veritas claims to have verified documents leaked months ago. The investigative organization recently released documents acquired from a Secret Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, a report that appeared to show that Dr. Anthony Fauci lied under oath when he repeatedly claimed before Congress that the National Institutes of Health had not been involved in the EcoHealth Alliance in gain-of-function research. The report goes on to detail concern regarding the COVID-19 gain-of-function program, the concealment of documents, the suppression of potential curatives like um, ivermectin and hydrodoxychloroquine. I have a hard time with that one. And mRNA vaccines, Project Veritas claims. 
Well, the J6 Ashley Babbitt shooter has been cleared without an interview. The U.S. Capitol Police officer responsible for the only violent re- violence related death during the J9 Capitol riot, Michael Byrd, was cleared of any wrongdoing without even being interviewed by any investigators. The report appears to run contrary to Byrd's uh, claim made during his NBC News interview when said there's an investigative process and was cleared by the Department of Justice and FBI and D.C. Metropolitan Police. The reason for the lack of investigative interviews is because Byrd refused to answer any questions and investigators never pressed the issue. According to Babbitt family attorney Terry Roberts, Bird didn't provide any statement to criminal investigators and they didn't push him to make a statement. It's astonishing how skimpy his investigative file is. D.C. Metro Police Department records back up Robert's account. More evidence of a politically motivated whitewash is being questioned. The Education Department is denying the claim that Miguel Cordona solicited a letter linking parents to domestic terrorism. And White House tries to downplay Stacey Abrams' no-show at the Georgia speech by saying we are all on the same page. Michelle Obama set an ambitious goal to register a million voters ahead of the 2022 midterms. And Dr. Fauci came to a COVID-19 hearing with opposition research on Rand Paul, like a politician would. In a hot mic moment, he called Roger Marshall a moron. And meanwhile, uh, Fauci's NIH division paid $205,000 for researchers to study transgender monkeys. Absolutely. Democrats operatives say Hillary Clinton is the best option for the party to win the 2024 election. Really? Roughly 18,000 Afghan refugees remain on U.S. bases months after the president's surrender and retreat. Meanwhile, DHS can't account for 50,000 migrants released in 2021. Well, Dr. Fauci was warned about possible gain of function creation of uh, COVID-19 in January of 2020 and has Omicron turned a corner. U.S. infections declined for the first time since Christmas. Berkeley, California will force students to wear KN95 masks, which the CDC chief says are very hard to breathe in when you wear them properly and hard to tolerate when you wear them for long periods of time. Also, grocery shortages are being seen across the country amid the Omicron surge. Is Facebook moving to Texas? Well, the parent company, Meta, signed a massive lease in downtown Austin. The Senate GOP re-election arm hauled in a record $104 million in 2021. Well, this day in history, 1828, the United States and Mexico signed a treaty of limits defining the borders between the two countries to be the same as the one established by the 1819 treaty between the U.S. and Spain. 1915, the U.S. House of Representatives rejects 204 to 174, a proposed constitutional amendment to give women nationwide the right to vote. 1932, Hattie Carraway becomes the first woman elected to the U.S. Senate, representing Arkansas after initially being appointed to serve out the remainder of the term of her late husband, Thaddeus. 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court in Spiduel versus Board of Regents of University of Oklahoma unanimously rules that state law uh, schools could not discriminate against applicants on the basis of race. 1959, Motown, originally Tamala Records, is founded by Barry Gordy in Detroit. 1966, on this day in history, President Lyndon Baines Johnson says in his State of the Union address that the U.S. military should stay in Vietnam until communist aggression there is stopped. Also in 1966, the TV series Batman, starring Adam West and Burt Ward, as the dynamic duo premieres on ABC, airing twice a week on consecutive nights. 
And in 2000, in a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court in Illinois versus uh, Wardlaw uh, gives police broad authority to stop and question people who run at the sight of an officer. Finally, on this day in history, 2014, officials announced that Iran has agreed to limit uranium enrichment and to open its nuclear program to daily inspection by international experts. It's 2022. You'd think that would be resolved by now, but sadly not. Well, coming up, uh, we've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour, and we'll hear from Donald Critchlow, author of Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. Also want to remind you that Mission Connection is coming up next Friday and Saturday. For more information and to register, which is required for this free event, go to missionconnection.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that Americans are being seduced by socialist and communist charlatans who are crying out for revolution in the name of liberation. They're teaching young Americans to praise the, the ferociously totalitarian regimes of Lenin, Mao, and Castro, and the youth are completely missing the truth about these regimes' deadly nature. Well, in his latest book, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny, he offers in-depth biographies of five of the most popular modern-day revolutionaries, which is an odd phrase to say, the most popular modern-day revolutionaries whose ideologies killed millions. Well, these men came to power through the same message we hear today. The people must be liberated from their oppressors. Well, my next guest, Dr. Donald Critchlow is a widely published historian who leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University and Revolutionary Monsters is his expert warning against the intoxicating power of revolutionary ideology. Once again, my guest is a uh, university professor and author, and I'm just delighted to have you with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Critchlow. Uh, Well, please call me uh, Don. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is such a timely and fascinating look at these uh, revolutionaries. It's a, a word that we use quite often, but don't necessarily uh, understand some of the, the revolutionaries that, that give it substance. Uh, talk a little bit about what motivated you at this moment to highlight these um, these few who are so often cited as examples of where we should go as a nation. Well, uh, this book, Revolutionary Monsters, was motivated more by just seeing uh, students wearing uh, Che Guevara T-shirts. I saw a poll that uh, of young people in America today, <coughs> excuse me, that 52% approved of uh, communism and socialism, 52%. Then I saw another poll that said that 20% of our youth thought that private property should be abolished and, and all property owned by the state. So I thought we needed a wake-up call, and that's what Revolutionary Monsters is all about. Is it that these young people simply do not understand that history, their education is incomplete, or do they fully understand and embrace the figures that they cite as examples for where we ought to be headed? Well, there are a few that uh, romanticize uh, people like Che Guevara and Stil Castro. But in class the other day, uh, one student, a third-year history uh, major, uh, uh, told told the class that he had never heard that Poland had been uh, under communist uh, rule and that he had never heard of the uh, Berlin Wall. So we have a true uh, 
uh, we have a few true believers in equity and social justice and that they, we need to transform uh, America that's systemically uh, racist. But most of the students are uh, pretty ignorant of history in general. And I think that's a reflection of K world education. Yeah, so that's absolutely. why we're revolutionary monsters. You write in the introduction, the modern revolutionary mind is enraptured by millennialists' visions of a perfect society. Those who succumb the most to revolutionary logic take on a terrorist mentality. These revolutionary monsters assume the role of prophets acting in a corrupt world that cannot be reformed or bettered gradually. Heaven on earth arrives only through destruction of the existing world order. The modern revolutionary believes with um, fanatical conviction that the old order needs to be destroyed. Violence is necessary to fulfill the prophecy. Terror is an instrument for achieving and maintaining power. Now, the uh, revolutionaries that you highlight in the book, we would certainly nod our heads and agree that that is precisely what underlay their uh, seizure of power. Is that an apt description of some of the uh, millennial revolutionaries today uh, who have rejected the notion of private property and believe we ought to be uh, heading in a very different direction? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, groups like Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter actually envision a, a new communist uh, society. In class, uh, since I'm speaking of students, uh, the semester before last or the year before uh, COVID, I guess, uh, two students came up to me after class and told me, shared with me, that they were libertarian communists. Uh, yes, libertarian communists. Sounds like an oxymoron, yes. but it's, yeah, it's basically a belief that, you know, we could, they could create a new society, even though they may have, uh, they might have known that past communist uh, regimes have uh, failed. Yeah, every new experiment suggests if we just had more money, more time, and better leaders, the model would work for us uh, without recognizing the model is itself flawed. Once again, an excerpt from your introduction. In the 20th century, millions of people have died at the hands of revolutionary monsters who came into power, calling for the liberation of people from their oppressors. Mass murder within these revolutionary regimes was not a coincidence. Terror is instrumental to the modern revolutionary. Mass murder follows without apology. Terror is employed to maintain power within the regime and is used against the revolutionaries' internal and external enemies. The Islamic Republic is one example that you offer. With the violence that we've witnessed over the last year and a half, maybe two years, is this an example of an effort to establish through violence uh, and justify violence uh, to move us in a direction um, toward socialism, communism, however you want to describe it? Yes, a lot of uh, people, uh, I think, uh, even on uh, the Republican side, don't understand the uh, revolutionary uh, mind. It's one that seeks a perfect society and wants to begin, erase all history, and begin with the year uh, zero. And when I talk about uh, the, in the book, in, in detail, it's a short book aimed for the uh, young people and, uh, and, and people that are concerned about America, I, I talk about specific, specifically about the kind of terrorism. Mao, for exam, example, when he came to power, set a quota on local uh, cadre in the provinces on the number of uh, deaths that they needed to have. So that he put a quota of 1% to 2% in each province who needed to die of starvation or arrest and, uh, and execution. 
Similarly, uh, Mugabe in uh, Zimbabwe, uh, when he came to power, uh, used North Korean uh, tr- troops, uh, trained troops. Uh, they were Zim- they were uh, Zimbabweans uh, to attack a rival uh, tribe to commit uh, genocide and uh, rape the women and terrorize the people. And one last example, uh, Khomeinian is, which I discussed in Revolutionary Monsters, in his last uh, 30 days, ordered the execution of 30,000 political uh, prisoners. And that was carried out often by hanging them slowly for hours at a time. So we're talking about monsters who have uh, little repulsion against uh, against uh, genocide. Che Guevara is, uh, I I think, should be seen as a sociopath. He he liked killing and said as much. Yeah, I I often see the T-shirts that you referenced a few moments ago and wonder, do you have any idea what that individual did and what he represented? And the answer, clearly, I would like to think, is no. Well, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the problems uh, rest in our educational uh, system. Yeah, so I think, it's not think that right. history, history and civics are not being taught. It's a question of how they're being taught and who's teaching them. So they, you know, so history is taught, but it's all through a lens of social justice, whether it's racial justice or environmental justice or whatever. So major events like the fall of the Berlin Wall are not uh, not discussed. There's a, a deliberate uh, dumbing down of our uh, youth to fill their uh, minds in a certain way that will allow them to support uh, transformation of our own uh, society. Yeah, well, ideas have consequences. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're talking with uh, uh, Professor Donald Critchlow. He is the Katzen Family Professor at Arizona State University, the author of several books. He leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University, a certificate program that provides students with a robust civic education. Oh, I just love the sound of it, the robust civic education. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Dr. Donald Critchlow. He is the Katzen Family Professor at Arizona State University and author of several books. He leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University. We're talking about his uh, his latest book, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into tyranny. Now we've touched on uh, some of these revolutionaries that you feature in the book, but who are the uh, the, the re- uh, revolutionary monsters that you um, uh, highlight in your book, and why did you choose these particular five modern revolutionaries? Well, I chose uh, Lenin, Mao, uh, Mugabe, and Castro, and uh, Khomeini because they represented fought, uh, different continents. So it shows how. Uh, how bad uh, things can happen in, uh, when these so-called liberators uh, take power. And uh, within each of them, we see uh, a pattern of, as you said, bad ideas do matter. Uh, what happened in all of these societies is the bad ideas began to infiltrate uh, the youth and the so-called intelligentsia uh, before the uh, revolutionary upheavals. So Lenin was, uh, by 1870, uh, all the Russian youth were reading Marxism. Similarly, uh, in Mao's pre-revolutionary China, by 
Mugabe, 
and Khomeini all were university educated. In fact, they were uh, they became revolutionaries while at uh, university, learning a little bit earlier before he went to university. But all of them were university uh, educated. Mugabe actually was sent to uh, university on a scholarship and funded by Christian missionaries. Mm. So the uh, so you know the idea that. Uh, if we're all educated, we'll be enlightened isn't necessarily the case, is it? No, it is not. Um, some might suggest, because you uh, focus on monster revolutionaries, that this is a counter-revolutionary book. Let me ask you, because you touch on this in the book, was the American Revolution um, a revolution in this, the sense that you write about these monsters? Yes, uh, the very idea of revolution begins with a scientific astronomical concept of restoration. And so the American Revolution and the earlier uh, Glorious Revolution and later the Polish Revolution in 1989 were actually seeking a a restoration. The American Revolution was to restore the uh, individual rights of uh, Englishmen. The idea of uh, revolution uh, as articulated by our founders, was to create a society and, a, and political institutions that would allow for uh, equality of opportunity and the right to vote. Uh, it took a long while for us to mm-hmm. achieve this uh, fully. We're still working, working uh, to make progress on many of the issues. But that's very different than a social revolution that's calling for social uh, equality. And uh, when you seek to create a perfect society, it only leads to uh, human tragedy. Uh, recent polls indicate that the majority of young people support socialism, that 20 percent believe all private property should be abolished and owned by the state. Um, have we lost a generation to socialism? And do they fully comprehend what those two things, if implemented, would actually mean for them personally? Well, I think we need to be uh, worried about this, and that's what inspired me to write the uh, the book, Revolutionary Monsters. So I hope that uh, grandparents and parents will uh, buy copies for their uh, grandchildren and children, and also uh, maybe buy a copy for your woke uh, neighbor who thinks that uh, social equity is a, a really good idea. So uh, the question is, is whether we've lost that generation. I think it's a, a toss-up right now. Mm. Uh, many young people just don't pay attention to politics at all. They're very apathetic and cynical toward it, maybe with good uh, cause. Uh, we do have uh, a number of activists, and as I show in Revolutionary Monsters, these activists uh, could become powerful forces. The Bolshevik, uh, so-called Bolshevik revolution, is really uh, a coup d'etat with a few hundred uh, Bolsheviks in St. Petersburg, uh, taking over the uh, provisional uh, revolutionary uh, government. So it doesn't take very many, uh, very many uh, people to undertake a revolution, and that was uh, Lenin's contribution to the very notion of a vanguard party, which was going to be uh, disciplined and would take orders from above. And Antifa, by the way. Uh, should be considered a Marxist-Leninist organization. Uh, They're very uh, well-organized. Members have to go through a 10-stop indoctrination. So it doesn't take very many to uh, activists. 
and committed uh, cadre with revolutionary dreams to uh, undertake uh, transformation. I don't think we're going to see a political revolution, but what we are seeing right now is a quiet revolution in which uh, bad ideas have seeped into, uh, and the left has taken control of nearly every major institution in our uh, society. So it's going to take, yes, please. I was just going to say, it doesn't take many to facilitate a revolution, but how many does it take who are apathetic, who uh, don't resist, who just allow it to happen? It seems to me it would take far more people to just uh, let it happen um, when you have a much smaller number who are the revolutionaries trying to change things. Yeah, well, the uh, a small activist uh, cadre could direct uh, social discontent in ways that uh, that prove uh, destructive. So we with, we see uh, this these these activists beginning and bad ideas beginning to take uh, effect as they've gained hold of our uh, educational institutions. Now going down to K through twelve, they've taken control of uh, mostly of media and 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 bless you for your good work uh, on the radio. They've taken control of uh, of um, of entertainment, all you do is have to watch TV or go to the movies and see how uh, ideas uh, or bad ideas are slipped in. So we we have a we're uh, confronting, in my opinion, existential uh, crisis right now in our uh, country, and I think a lot of the anxiety the anxiety that's being felt is uh, is a correct anxiety. We're talking this afternoon about the book Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. My guest is Dr. Donald Critchlow. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about revolutionary monsters, five men who turned liberation into tyranny. And my guest, author Dr. Donald Critchlow, a widely published historian who leads the program in political history and leadership at Arizona State University. The five are Lenin of Russia, whose monstrous dictatorship left a legacy of one-party rule, a police state, a failed economy, and Joseph Stalin. Mao of China, a revolutionary destroyer whose leadership led to the death of at least 42.5 million of his own people from famine and violence. Castro of Cuba, the megalomaniac who desecrated the economy, created a one-party police state with a surveillance system or... Uh, extensive than in Stalin's Russia, Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, who created a one-power state that committed genocide against his people, and uh, Khomeini of Iran, whose goals, uh, death to all infidels and heaven on earth, vied with the uh, dream of Lenin, Mao, and Castro. Uh, his mystic beliefs about God and the state envisioned a heaven on earth when it was, in fact, just the opposite. This is an important book to understand where revolutionary minds in our own culture and in our time are attempting to lead us, and uh, perhaps we won't go blindly as so many others have gone before us. Do you see revolution coming today in America? And I know you've made a distinction between social and political revolution. Do you see it coming successfully and more broadly into our culture here in America? Well, I think what we're seeing, as I mentioned earlier, is that we're seeing a a quiet revolution, Mm -hmm. uh, a, a takeover. So I don't think the uh, I don't think we'll see a political revolution of uh, such violence, 
but we are seeing an expression of uh, kind of authoritarian uh, mindset by the, uh, the left. And it's all about power and uh, control. You're a conservative faculty member at a university. What is that like for you? And are you encountering lots of uh, students who are, uh, to put it mildly, woke? Well, I, I uh, encounter many uh, woke students. We're seeing the effects of uh, K through 12 education. But there are many students uh, in my classes in Arizona State, uh, draws from all over the country who are uh, conservative. Uh, the Republican, uh, I'm the advisor to the college Republicans, and at their first meeting at the beginning of the semester, they had 80 students uh, show up. So I don't think it's a lost cause, and I don't think we're fighting against windmills. We can uh, we can win this with uh, if we all do our uh, jobs and talk to our neighbors and our community, get involved in our communities by running for school boards and supporting uh, good candidates. And we, if we all do our part, uh, then I think we can uh, we can uh, fight and uh, overcome what we're seeing. So I uh, I see my, this book. Revolutionary Monsters is just a small contribution to this general battle war that we have going on in our, in our country right now. The last chapter of your uh, book is titled Lessons Learned, and it's followed by a question mark. Um, I don't know if you're referring to your readers or to the culture in general. What should we learn from these five uh, monstrous revolutionary uh, leaders that might save us from going in a similar direction in our um, social revolution that we're in the midst of? Yes, I, uh, the, the two major points that I make, and I, these are the lessons that I, uh, that I offer in Revolutionary Monsters, is that bad ideas really do matter, and that we really need, and it begins with uh, education, and we need to be involved in our educational uh, system. I mean, parents obviously have a right to uh, to complain about the kind of uh, racial division that's being uh, taught in our uh, schools. It's just not uh, critical race theory. It's everything that it's history being pushed through a lens that everything is about race. And then they're emphasizing that some people have whites have uh, privilege. So uh, whether you're uh, conscious, you know, so unconsciously you could be a racist. So bad ideas matter. And secondly, uh, the second point I make, and this is a major lesson, is that uh, elites can uh, fail us. And I think the, uh, the political, corporate, and uh, entertainment media elites are failing us uh, today. So we can change that by, uh, in multiple uh, ways, I think. And it all begins with citizen patriotic involvement. Yeah, absolutely. And making sure we, we've educated ourselves so that we can speak to revolutionaries in our own time in a way that's constructive. Um, where can our listeners buy a copy of Revolutionary Monsters? I think it's important for us uh, to read it ourselves and then to make it available, perhaps to others who have embraced the notion of revolution in our own um, country and our own culture. Well, this is a short book that's uh, readily available on audio as well as uh, uh, hardback, it, it could be ordered, and I, uh, I hesitate to suggest this, but Amazon, Barnes & Noble, it could be ordered online, but it also could be ordered uh, directly from the uh, publishers. So 
those uh, those interested, and I hope uh, many people are. And it's just not about me selling books here. I think this is an important book. Uh, they can uh, just Google uh, Revolutionary Monsters and order the book, and uh, and and begin to uh, give it as uh, Christmas gifts. So I want to wish you Happy Thanksgiving and a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday season for uh, all of your listeners. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I love your show, by the way. I've been on, I think, previously, and you do a great uh, interview, so thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Well, it's always good to have a great guest, so <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Happy Thanksgiving. You Bye-bye. too. Again, Dr. Uh, uh, Donald Critchlow, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. And it is rather interesting, as I mentioned during our conversation, the Che Guevara uh, T-shirt, especially when I see black guys wearing this. Do you have any idea? This guy is a racist. Do you have any idea who he was, what he did, what he said? And the answer, quite frankly, is no. You know a thing or two and, you know, you kind of like that thing or two and you just assume uh, assume the rest. Well, this goes into greater uh, detail. And while we know a lot about some of these guys, maybe not the um, Ayatollah or uh, Robert Mugabe, we may not know as much about them as we think we know about some of the others, Lenin, Mao and Castro. It really is a good refresher course. And then, as mentioned, to pass that along to others who may know even less. Uh, it, it feels a bit discouraging to see the direction that the nation is going and you feel a little bit helpless. He mentioned that it only takes a small cadre of revolutionaries to be successful. When you think of the majority, if they resist that, then, you know, how many does it take? It doesn't take a whole, <laughs> doesn't take the whole population, but it te- does take some of us standing courageously and challenging the direction that we're going. He also made the point that, you know, parents have a role to play. Well, parents are now being demonized for trying to play that role. They are primarily responsible responsible for their kids. They're responsible for understanding and approving their education. Well, the, the pushback right now is, no, you're not. Uh, you really don't have a role to play in all of this. Well, we need to resist that notion and say, yes, I do have a role to play in this and not simply throw up our hands and say, that's uh, that's just the way it is. Anyway, revolutionary monsters, five men who turned liberation into tyranny. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, from milk to beverages to produce, shoppers are seeing supplies dwindle again. And uh, folks are pretty astounded by the thinning grocery store supplies. It's just empty shelves in a lot of places that we hadn't anticipated seeing them this late in the pandemic. Well, we're being told that uh, the thinning groceries and drug supplies are reminiscent of March of 2020. I hate to even invoke that time period, thinking back to what things were like then. It's like a Soviet store during 1981. It's horrible. That's what one observer said. Well, it's not quite to that extent. Honestly, it looks like March of 2020 when everybody was stockpiling and shelves were bare. That's what another um, observer says. Well, grocery shoppers across the country We're encountering some pretty barren shelves. I went to Fred Meyer just the other day, and I was really surprised at how little there was of some of the stuff that normally populate the shelves. Uh, Looking for typical supplies, there's the supply chain snafu that has continued. Increasing COVID-19 infections, related hurdles, as well as severe winter weather all contribute to the situation. Some of us, maybe not all, I hope not all, are observing. It's just a domino effect. 
Um, another uh, shopper says, whatever it is, I know they need to hurry up and get this straightened out because people will be starving. It's going to get rough if it keeps on continuing like this. Well, the truth is, um, even with the shelves barren in some places, we're not going to starve. There are some places in the world where that's actually occurring, and I don't want to overstate the problem. But it is rather surprising in a uh, country and an era where we're used to an abundance to see things in some scarcity. Well, multiple shoppers rattled off a litany of groceries they couldn't find, ranging from milk to beverages to produce, everything, meat, dairy, certain breads were out, most vegetables. It was all um, uh, fresh items, one man said. Again, observers who, like me, have gone to the grocery store and found a lot of things missing. Well, a lot of the stores have been down like this um, uh, multiple stores over several days. I think they are about to have a few food shortage. Everything's pretty empty. Now, whether or not that's the case remains to be seen. But this is what I've observed in a couple of stores that I've been in just in the last day or two. Uh, in the middle of all of that, a couple of other things. U.S. households are spending more on housing, on food, on gas, on transportation, medical care. And we're falling deeper into the red. From credit cards to car loans, the average family now owes about $155,622, and higher prices are already taking a toll in the midst of all of that. Well, as consumers pay more for everything, from groceries to gasoline, household incomes are failing to keep pace with a higher overall cost of living. Now, we live in a home, it's uh, built in the 20s or 30s, and it still requires gas to, or excuse me, oil to heat the home. I can't tell you how much it costs to heat, though. We can't fill the tank. We just buy what we can afford and wait for that to run out and then refill it again. Over the past two years, medium incomes fell 3%, while the cost of living rose 7%. That's due in part to rising housing and medical costs. More than three-quarters of Americans, or 78%, have received some form of pandemic relief since March of 2022, rather 2020, uh, which either went toward buying necessities, saving, or paying down debt, according to NerdWallet, a poll taken of some 2,000 adults. And yet more than one-third said their household financial situation has gotten worse over the past year. After Americans paid off a record $83 billion in credit card debt, credit card balances are on the rise again, along with mortgage, auto and student loan debt. Well, the past year and a half was already tough for lots of Americans who lost their jobs. NerdWallet's credit card expert says now we're faced with rising costs for much needed items like food, housing, gas, transportation and medical care. It, it remains pretty difficult for many to catch up. Well, the average U.S. household with debt now owes $155,622 or more than $15 trillion altogether, including debt from credit cards, mortgages, home equity lines of credit, auto loans, student loans and other household obligations. That's up 6.2 percent from just a year ago. And while most federal relief measures to help individuals and families expand uh, unemployment, for example, stimulus checks are no longer in effect, it's expected that there there's going to be a bigger wage increase in 2022. Well, the conference board is predicting a 3.9% jump in wage costs for firms, including pay for new hires. That's the highest rate since 2008. Well, for those in need of more urgent assistance, supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits have been increased, and there uh, continues to be billions of dollars in federal rental assistance accessible to tenants who've fallen behind. The Biden administration also announced last month that the payment pause for federal student loan borrowers would be extended through May of this year. 
Now, in that context, the Treasury Department, they're warning that tax refunds and other services may be delayed this year because of enormous challenges, including the coronavirus pandemic and previous budget cuts made at the Internal Revenue Service. Well, Treasury officials told reporters during a phone call earlier this week that they're predicting a frustrating season for taxpayers and tax preparers because of factors that also included federal stimulus actions, according to the Washington Post. Well, the IRS is also entering filing season with a large backlog of unaddressed returns. Officials uh, told reporters during that uh, press conference, the agency usually has about one million unaddressed returns, but this year's number could be several times that amount, according to a Treasury official, according to The Washington Post. They declined to provide a more exact prediction, but said it's going to be challenging. An independent watchdog revealed in June that the IRS ended last year's filing season with more than 35 million individual and business tax returns rather that hadn't been processed. 35 million, reportedly a fourfold increase from the year before the pandemic. And with the pandemic uh, triggering lockdowns, a number of in-person tax centers that typically processed paper forms were forced to uh, close. The Post uh, also noted. And additionally, the IRS is grappling with GOP-led budget cuts that led to a roughly 25 percent decrease in staff size. While all those existing challenges were magnified by the U.S. economic response to the pandemic, that included trillions of dollars for new programs to support Americans. With the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, that's Chuck Reddig, he wrote in a statement that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to create challenges, but said the agency reminds people there are important steps that they can take, that we can take, to help ensure that your tax return and refund don't face processing delays. Now, there are already delays built in. But there are errors that can be made or omissions that can make that even worse. Well, the deadline, of course, for filing taxes for 2021 income is uh, the 18th of April. The IRS is going to start accepting individual income tax returns for the year on the 24th of this month. So if you're an early uh, filer, you have the 24th to look forward to. If you're late, the 18th of April. Uh, Reddick said planning for filing season in the U.S. is a massive undertaking, adding that uh, teams at the agency have been working nonstop these past several months to prepare. Well, Treasury officials told reporters that there's no plan in place at this moment to prolong that deadline, encouraging individuals to file early, according to the Post. They also urged individuals to make an account on the IRS website and file returns online. That will make things a little easier. Filing electronically, they say, with direct deposit and avoiding a paper tax return is more important than ever this year. And we urge extra attention to those who received an economic impact payment or an advanced child tax credit. Uh, Last year, people should make sure they report the correct amount on their tax return to avoid delays, Reddick said in a statement. So economically, things are a bit challenging. Now, there are some optimists who suggest that in the short term, we're going to see things improve um, sooner rather than later. We'll just have to wait and see if that is the case. But we can certainly be frugal. We can be careful. We can be mindful of others uh, around us who may be struggling We can be generous. We can be prayerful. All of the things that help us to navigate difficult seasons uh, with an attitude and a heart that is uh, trusting in God and doing the right things for ourselves and for others uh, in our orbit. Just some things to think about. Also something to think about. Mission Connection Northwest 
It's uh, coming up the 21st of January and the 22nd at Village Church in Beaverton. Now, if you're looking for a new way to serve God, if you want to explore what your calling might be, some opportunities for ministry, you want to learn more about contemporary world missions, you don't want to miss Mission Connection Northwest 2022. Again, that's coming up Friday and Saturday, the 21st and 22nd of January uh, at Village Church in Beaverton. I don't know about you. I talked to Build the Cloud yesterday, and I think I made reference to Mission Connection coming up in a couple of weeks. That's next week. It's hard to imagine that the 21st and 22nd of January is next next week, which, by the way, is preceded by Dan Rice Day, which is Tuesday the 18th. I thought I'd just mention that. It's probably already on your Hallmark card, but in, in case it's not, you might want to pencil that in. Anyway, Friday and Saturday, the 21st and 22nd of January at Village Church in Beaverton. And thank you, Village, for opening your doors to the body of Christ for this great mission conference. It can help you discover your place in God's global plan with dozens, in fact, 80 plus workshops, 80 plus exhibitors and resources. I'm going to be broadcasting from that location on Friday from four to six. I'm also going to co MC the conference, which includes a number of inspirational speakers. Uh, Jeannie Marie from Frontiers, Operation Mobilization President uh, Andrew Scott, Pastor Adrian Reeves with the National African American Missions Conference, and Kevin Palau, a, a worship team from out of the area that specializes in multicultural worship. Mission Connection is free, but you do have to register to attend. It's um, easy to do online, so check out missionconnection.com or go to kpdq.com with links to uh, uh, register, and uh, you can also get the details for the conference. So that's coming up next weekend, Friday and Saturday. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great, great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.